0: Again, turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel, in the 21st chapter. I'm going to read just a few verses, verses 8 through 10. And I've asked Mark Lawrence if he would ask God's blessing on the proclamation of his truth. 2 Samuel 21 at verse 8. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she bare to Adrael, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them in the mountain before Jehovah. And they fell all seven together and they were put to death in the days of harvest in the first days at the beginning of barley harvest. And Rizpah the daughter of Ayah took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water was poured upon them from heaven and she suffered neither the birds of the heavens to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. Let us pray. Holy Father, Lord, we come to you again. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it in our language, our possession without persecution. Lord, we marvel that you are God of the covenant, this historical narrative shows the activity of your people, your work in their lives, the complexity of it all, Lord. It's not unfamiliar to our own lives, and we take heart in it that you are in control. Uh, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for David, his preparation. Lord, might you bring to his mind all that he's studied, they might you share it uh, with, with truth, Lord. Might your spirit uh, be with him. Help us receive this and apply it to our own lives that we might be conformed to the image of your dear Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It would be very reasonable for the question to come into all of our minds. When the world was Rizpa. Uh, we're told here that she was the daughter of Aya. We're not told anything else really, other than that she was a concubine of Saul. And we're only told other than this passage, her name is only mentioned four times in, in the word of God. These uh, occasions here in chapter 21 of Second Samuel and then in chapter three of Second Samuel, just a brief reference. To an accusation made by Ishbosheth against Abner, suggesting that at least Ishbosheth had suspicion that Abner had gone in unto his, or that is Saul's, concubine, Rizpah. We're never told if that was nothing more than a suspicion, whether it actually had taken place or not. But those are the only occasions that we find the name Rispa mentioned in the word of God. And I wonder if you, each of you along with myself, were brought to uh, think about the many people in scripture, the many names that are brought up, that are mentioned, that we hear almost nothing about or very, very little about. And Rizpah is indeed one of those. We think of uh, names like Dorcas, who was also called Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. We hear nothing else about her other than that brief mention in that chapter where she was raised from death to life. And the name Dorcas and the name Tabitha, each of them, at least according to Strong's, means gazelle. But we're told virtually nothing else about this woman other than she was very uh, hardworking and she was very faithful. And she made different items with the skill, the gifts of her hands that God had given to her. And because of this, I believe it has to be assumed that there are a number of churches, at least churches that my wife and I were in over the years. The ladies have formed groups that might've met weekly or monthly, called them Dorcas circles, where they sold or knitted different products, gifts, and so on, and made it to be something of a ministry. And isn't it interesting that with this woman's name being only mentioned in these few verses in Acts 9, that they would take that name for this activity. I'm not criticizing and I'm just saying it's interesting. And then an instance in the Old Testament, only one place is this man's name mentioned, Jabez in 1 Chronicles in chapter four mentioned three times. The fourth time Jabez is mentioned, it's actually the name of a town or village. But a couple of decades ago, someone made very much of that prayer of Jabez, as it was called. And probably most people that were introduced to the prayer of Jabez, or Yavetz, had never heard of the name before. And yet they got all excited and carried away i'm not saying again i'm not criticizing i'm only just pointing out how much in these two instances and i'm sure if i searched i could find a good number of others and perhaps perhaps there were i would i would almost automatically presume and it is a presumption but that there were men gathering uh, to pray the prayer of jabez on a weeknight evening, gathering together and making as much as they could of Jabez and the women making as much as they could of Dorcas. So I suppose here we could form another group uh, learning how we are to mourn for our lost loved ones. And we could refer to the group as the morning of Rizpah, how to mourn for your past loved ones. But we're really not told anything much about Rizpah. Nothing other than I mentioned in chapter three, nothing apart from this. And the names of her sons, Armoni and Mephibosheth, are never mentioned again. This is not the Mephibosheth that was Jonathan's son. They're not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. So what are we to make of this? What was, what was Rizpah doing here? Why were her sons chosen among these seven by David? And I would remind you of the backstory just a little bit that the Gibeonites had been brought to David to give their judgment as it were upon what should be done because God's wrath was poured out upon Israel with a drought and no rain at all, causing that drought. And David sought the face of Jehovah and God told him it is because of the murder of the Gibeonites committed by Saul. So David brought the Gibeonites or some representatives to him and asked, what should we do for you? And they told him very humbly, that let seven sons of Saul be put to death to appease God's wrath, to turn away his wrath that's been demonstrated by this terrible drought. All Israel suffering because of what Saul had done a good number of years previously. And so David being given by the Gibeonites the privilege if you will not a very happy privilege but the responsibility I should say of selecting these seven men and as we read he chose these two sons of Rizpah and five sons we're told of Mikal, who never had any sons but some commentators suggest that the problem is not necessarily a scribal error or a mistake of the writer but that Mikal took care of her sister Mirab's sons raised them up and that they were actually born to Murab, sons of Adriel but be that as it may David had the responsibility, the task of choosing these seven so he gave these seven to the Gibeonites and they hanged them they slew them as most commentators believe they executed them and then hanged their bodies up So here we find then Rizpah, and I'm gonna say doing what she could. She couldn't do very much. But we're told that from the beginning of harvest until water was poured upon them from heaven, which would signify the turning away of God's wrath, she suffered neither the birds of the heavens to rest on them on the bodies by day nor the beasts of the field by night. It's not, it doesn't take much imagination to realize the picture here of these seven bodies tied or chained or whatever or impaled on stakes and set out on this hill before Jehovah to demonstrate and to seek to appease God by these deaths. Whoever takes a man, whoever sheds man's blood, his blood shall be shed. And as representatives of the family of Saul, the blood of these seven was indeed shed. She was doing what she could. Matthew Henry surprisingly refers to this behavior of rispi as inordinate grief, inordinate unnecessary um, over the top whatever terms you want to use Matthew Henry suggesting that this was inordinate here are her two sons we don't know anything about the relationship she may have had with those other five in fact we're not really told what kind of relationship she had with her own sons but here she is and we really aren't told anything about her grieving in particular she's just trying to keep Those feeders of carrion away from the bodies of these seven men staked out like that. She's doing what she could. And it did surprise me. That's the very language Arthur Pink uses. Speaking of David's inordinate grief when he learned of the death of Absalom. Which was, and even Job knew it was, inordinate grief. It was uncalled for. It was irresponsible, it was unnecessary, but Rizpa is doing what she can to keep these beasts of the field, these birds of the air from feeding, on the dead bodies of these men. So who was Rizpa? What brought her to this place? Who were her sons? What were they? What was their condition? Were they in fact part of that bloody house of Saul? Were they part of those men that went and butchered a good number of Gibeonites? What were they? Or were they perhaps even innocent victims being sacrificed to appease the wrath of God? We're simply not told. The more you study, the more you read, The word of God, the more occasions you have of coming across examples such as this, where we have to admit we're not told. Some would say, oh, you can't admit that you don't know something. Kind of a preacher, are you? But we're not told and we're not going to make up a story. We're not going to manufacture some kind of story. We're not going to compose. We're not going to lie. We're simply not going to do that because it's wrong. You know what Jesus is? You hear of exegesis? That's bringing out the word of God from what the Holy Spirit has caused to be written. Jesus is adding or putting into the word. It's building, building a story, a fabrication, upon nothing, or virtually nothing it's adding to what God has written. That's eisegesis, we're not going to do that. There are those that do this and I was actually quite startled when I was doing a little search on where is to see what I could find more about her. I searched my, my encyclopedia, my biblical encyclopedias And there was nothing said there other than what we find in the scriptures. To their credit, they didn't add anything. I searched commentaries. I didn't find anyone that added anything because I've got very responsible commentaries. But I went on the internet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I came across some woman, I'm not saying that disparagingly, just just happens to be the truth. Some woman that uh, she wrote a evidently a book, or maybe she just has it on the internet, Women in the Bible. And her item about Respie is taken from that as I understand. But she says near the beginning the Bible story written by men supposed that Abner took Rizpah against her will. Again, we're not told. We're not told that they even had relations much less whether she gave herself or he took her. But she says after she relates a couple of remarks about that account between Abner and Rizpah she goes on to say that Abner did not survive regardless. You know the account probably that he went to make a pact with David and, and Joab who she calls David's right-hand man killed Abner. Murdered him. And then she goes on to say, listen, you, you know your Bibles. Ishboshe, He also was killed by David's men. Is that true? You know that it isn't. He was killed by some traitors among his own men. And she goes on Ishbosheth's death was the signal for the systematic murder of all of King Saul's heirs. Really? And of course, this included Rizpah's two surviving sons, Armoni. And Mephibosheth they along with other heirs of Saul were condemned and executed it was David's sickening act of revenge against their dead father King Saul really really who is this woman who is this person that is guilty of this revisionism. It's not even, it's worse than revisionism. It's out and out lies, out and out talebearing, making up a story to satisfy herself. Who is this woman? I had to find out. She begins a little mini biography She says, after my husband died, I moved out of teaching, she was a teacher, evidently, into full-time writing. I wrote and edited a variety of religion textbooks. You notice that she says religion textbooks, not Christian textbooks. Then I took on the job of developing the religious education curriculum now used extensively throughout Australia. God have mercy on Australia. My chief interest, she went on to say, was always biblical studies. I would ask, where did you find that in the Bible? Where did you study that in the Bible? She's even written a brief, and I guess this is on her website as well, The Life of Jesus Christ. I, I highly disrecommend it. But she goes on speaking about students asking her questions that she could not answer even though she attended church regularly. It did not prepare her for teaching religion to high school students. I wouldn't recommend that church either that she attended regularly and yet she didn't know enough to even teach religion to high school students. So I went back to university and gained advanced qualifications in this area. Then I taught religious education which I loved. What teaching resources did I use? Along the way, I was surprised to find there were hardly any suitable textbooks for religion. What's the matter with the Bible, Elizabeth? That's her name. What's the matter with the Bible? What about using the word of God if you're gonna teach religion? The only reason that I went to the time and and took up your time with this is because I wanted to exhort you to toward a Berean spirit. You can read whatever you want, but by all means, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Those Bereans are commended by the Holy Spirit in Acts. Have that Berean spirit. Don't take anybody's word about religion and especially about Christianity when they just make up these things, they just make them up out of their own brains and, and out of unregenerate hearts. So who was Rispa? what do we have to say then about Rispa? who was she? She was a mother of at least two sons, two sons that were executed, whether for crimes that they had done or not. She's a mother and there her two sons are, the bodies of her two sons. And so we're told that she spread sackcloth and she went out to try to keep the ravens, the birds of the air, the birds of the heaven off of their bodies. And the beasts of the field at night. To keep them away. Can you imagine that? Can you? It's almost impossible for us to visualize. But just imagine what in the world this amounted to. Seven bodies. Seven corpses rotting. And there's dispute about how long this went on. But most commentators believe it went on for a few months. Until God sent rain. It's possible that there was earlier rain, but most commentators don't believe that. They believe that it was three or four months that she went up with us. Imagine those bodies for three or four months. Imagine the stench. Imagine how hideous they were becoming, rotting, and in spite of her efforts being consumed by carrion feeders. What a horrific, what a horrific occasion this would be for anyone. This was a mother that was doing what she could out of love for her sons. Was she a believer? We're not told. Were they believers? Were they men who had come to the true God after they had committed that atrocity? We're not told. But she loved her sons. There are a lot of unbelieving mothers that love their sons, so they're not. She loved her sons and she was doing what she could, trying to keep her son's bodies from being brutalized, from being consumed, Hoping, hoping for the day I would suggest when the rain would come down and when the bodies could be provided a decent burial. There are a few other examples in the scriptures of mothers having to deal with the death of a son. I confess that I don't believe I ever really thought about this from the perspective of Adam and Eve. But they had to deal with the death of a son, did they not? And we're not told anything about their reaction to that either. They had to deal Not only with the death of a son, but at the hand of another son. When Cain slew his brother Abel, what was their reaction? What was the mother's reaction to that? How she must have mourned and grieved and been perplexed at this mystery. Because she had never seen, they had never seen a man die. And here's this mother. Certainly. Is it not fair to say, I don't want to add, (laughs) but isn't it fair at least to say that she was grieving the loss of her son? We get some indication when when Adam knew her again and she conceived and bore Seth, saying, God has given me another. It assuaged her grief to some extent, for sure. how she must have recoiled. We're not even told that she ever saw the body of her son Abel, but how she must have recoiled. And then her son Cain is driven away. The grief of a mother over her son. How much thought have we ever given to the grief laid upon Adam and Eve? there are others you remember Ruth the story of Ruth in that book with her name but it begins virtually the beginning of it is with Naomi the wife of Elimelech coming back from Moab coming back to Israel because they had heard that things were better but how did she come back how did she come back to Israel Ruth and Orpah were both widows. They had married her two sons, Malon and Kilian, And they had died. Again, we're not told how they died, whether it was disease, sickness, accident, murder. We don't know, we're not told. Simply that Naomi's two sons were dead and Elimelech had died as well. So these three widows come back. Were they grieving? Well, we don't know if they still were. We don't know how long, had pa- how much time had passed from the deaths of these men. But they're not thrilled over it. At least we're told about Naomi when she arrived, when they arrived in in Israel. Orpah having gone back to Moab. When somebody says, "Is this Naomi?" and she said, "Call me not Naomi." Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt bitterly with me. I went out full and Jehovah hath brought me back empty. Why call ye me Naomi, seeing Jehovah hath testified against me and the Almighty hath afflicted me? She expresses expresses bitterness. And certainly that could be understood as heavy sorrow. How long does it take a person to get over the death of a loved one? We can't say. We know in our own cases how long it may have taken ourselves over the years and it is a process. She doesn't act like someone that's still bitter, and yet I think the word or her speech may simply indicate that she hasn't fully gotten over it. Do we ever fully get over it? She's still grieving. Ruth is still grieving, very likely. I can't give you another son, she says, when she told them to go back. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth loved her. And she wanted to be with her people, Israel. But here's another case where we're not really told anything about what happened to Elimelech, to Malon, to Kilion, we're just not told. We're not gonna try to provide a backstory. It's possible, even very likely, that Armoni and Mephibosheth were pagan in their hearts it's most likely that they were among those that slew the Gibeonites because God points out because of Saul's bloody house suggests that the entire family of Saul his house was implicated in that slaughter But again, we're not told definitively. But what if she was a believer? What if she was mourning over her sons? What if they were not believers? (sighs) Sad enough it is. Sad enough. one is called upon to bury a child but how much greater the pain and the heartache when there is no ground to believe that they were in Christ how much greater is that pain there are other mothers in the scriptures that are only mentioned in passing by name but consider Ahinoam David's wife, one of his wives, and the mother of Amnon. You remember how Amnon, in Cain-like fashion, was murdered by his brother Absalom. And we're surprised at how David kind of sloughed it off. We're surprised by that, but no mention is made at all of Ahinoam. Frankly, we don't know if she was still alive at the time, but here is a conspicuous rebel against the truth of God, Amnon. We don't have any basis at all to imagine that he loved the Lord. And here he's killed by his brother Absalom, taken in the middle of his revelry at a party, drunk even, and struck down by Absalom. What about his mother? If indeed she was a believer, maybe she had some false pagan hope in in his future after death. We don't know that either. What about Absalom's mother? Yes, David grieved greatly over Absalom. He was his darling son, Absalom was. And even that excessive love that he had for Absalom. He could look in the mirror and see that that was a big part of Absalom's fall. That he took advantage of the love of his father. But what about Absalom's mother, Maacha? Again, we're not told. But here are mothers in the scriptures. Mothers grieving over their unsaved Loved ones. It's a hard picture, isn't it? <sighs> Mayaka would have, would have no grounds for comfort when she learned of the death of Absalom. A Hinoam would have no grounds of comfort when she learned of the death of Amnon at her brother's hands. What may we expect these mothers to be resting upon when their sons were conspicuous reprobates? Now, I know we can't read the heart of another man. I try to use the words carefully, conspicuous. In other words, to our view, to our understanding, to what we have been told and seen, that they were conspicuous reprobates, both Amnon and Absalom. And at Adonijah Turned out the very same way. We haven't read about that yet, but we will shortly, next year. Adonijah turned out the same way and even followed in the footsteps of Absalom, his brother, and was put to death. Surely his mother must have mourned without any hope. Was there anything in all of his life that would give her any hope for him at all? We're told in the scriptures that David, his father, hadn't refused him anything all his life. Think about that. Think about how wonderful it is for parents to give their children everything they want and to never refuse them anything all their lives that's Adonijah and very likely the same was the case with Absalom and Amnon David was a great king but he wasn't much of a father after they have reached adulthood many children today it doesn't matter if you send I'm not criticizing any of these things. All I'm saying is you can send your children to a Christian school. You can homeschool them. You can have them around the table, morning and evening, reading the scriptures, trying to teach them, teaching them the gospel, teaching them about Jesus Christ. That doesn't guarantee anything. Doesn't guarantee anything. But I beg you not to despond. There is something that you can do. You can pray. God has given us that precious gift of prayer. We can pray for our children, for our other kinfolk according to the flesh. We can pray for their salvation. We can ask God to use that as a metaphor. We can ask God to drive away the carrion feeders the lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, drive it away from them. Try to keep them from temptation. And behaving as Rizpah, driving these things away like the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field. But what is essential is a new heart, right? They need new hearts, pray night and day. Never mind the birds by day and the beasts by night, pray day and pray night that God would intersect their lives, the lives of our sons and daughters with regenerating grace. Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verse 17 not applied to Rizpah or her sons but I believe it should be applied to every father and mother the eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagle shall eat it that certainly could be brought to speak of the sons of Saul executed because of their Being in the household of Saul. Yeah, I know there's another Proverb 22.6. Raise up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, we have the responsibility to raise our children up in the way that they should go. But we can't make them go that way. They need a new heart. They need regenerating grace. And we can pray for it. We can't give them new hearts. Like Rispa, we can do what we can. We can do what God has taught us to do as parents, but we can't regenerate their hearts. But we can pray that God would, that he would intersect the lives of our sons and daughters with regenerating grace. Pray, parents, morning and evening. We even find Mary, Morning, her son that was hanged up like these sons of Saul and there was Mary at the foot of the cross and it was a uh, working out of what had been told her when we read in Luke that she was greatly troubled at the saying. And cast in her mind what manner of salutation this might be. Because the angel came unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. And thou shalt call his name Jesus. She was to be that one promised in the Old Testament that would bring forth the Messiah. But we must recall the words of Simeon as well. Among other things, in his speech, he said, Behold, this child, this was after he was born, of course, is set for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which is spoken against. Yea, and a sword shall pierce through thine own soul. There she is at the foot of the cross, seeing her son. Yes, she knew that he was Manuel. She knew that he was the son of God, but he was her son as well. She bore him. And there she was mourning at the foot of the cross, even though she knew through faith that he would be raised again. Yet she was mourning. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman! behold thy son just as an aside Jesus didn't call her mother he said woman behold thy son even as he did at the marriage at Cana of Galilee in the second chapter woman he said what have I to do with thee in John 2 4 I just make this point because it was brought to my attention in my studies He didn't call her mother. There are those that call her the mother of God. And there's a sense in which she was. But they call her the blessed mother. They make her something that she isn't. But it's just pointed and interesting that Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, called her woman. Behold thy son, woman, What have I to do with thee? Thus the blessed virgin advanced in her pilgrimage of faith and faithfully persevered in her union with her son unto the cross. There she stood in keeping with the divine plan, enduring with her only begotten son, Did you catch that? Enduring with her only begotten son, the intensity of his suffering really, joining herself with his sacrifice in her mother's heart and lovingly consenting to the immolation of this victim born of her to be given by the same Christ Jesus dying on the cross as a mother to his disciple with these words, woman, behold your son. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. They make her to be a mediatrix, a co-redeemer with Christ. But Jesus himself does not even call her mother. But woman, behold thy son. Oh, that many in that church and many deceived in other churches around the world, across the upstate, would recognize that there is only one mediator between God and man the man, Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks and praise unto Thee that Thou did give Thine only begotten Son, that He joyfully set His face toward Jerusalem, knowing what awaited Him at Golgotha. But even while we were yet sinners, He loved us so much, He died for us, that we might have redemption, that we might have forgiveness, That we might be justified through his blood, the blood of the Lamb of God. Oh, Father, make us to be more, more, more grateful today than yesterday, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction from 1 Peter 5 14. Peace be unto all that are in Christ. Amen.